Hey, it's Dr. Kristen. I'm super excited about our new season coming out September 26th. And while we're getting ready for our new season, we wanted to re-release some of your favorite episodes. Today's episode is The Power of Family Meals. Welcome to Feeding the Family with Dr. Kristen, where we help you navigate the challenges of feeding your family and learn about the role food plays in our health and relationships. Feeding and food relationships can be stressful, confusing, and even destructive. I'm Kristen Saxena, a pediatrician and mother of four who's been researching and sharing what I've learned about feeding for over 10 years. In this podcast, I'll share my experience and expertise to help our kids and ourselves with everyday survival tips for real parents. This podcast is about progress, not perfection. So let's get started. Welcome back to Feeding the Family with Dr. Kristen, where we help you navigate the challenges of feeding your family and discuss the role that food plays in our health and relationships. I'm Dr. Kristen Saxena. I'm a pediatrician, mom of four, and self-proclaimed feeding nerd. And on today's episode, we will be talking about a topic that is near and dear to my heart, and that is family meals. But before we get started... I am very excited to announce that for this episode, we're going to be doing a giveaway. So I have two brand new copies of our guest book, The Surprising Power of Family Meals. So all you need to do to be eligible to receive one of these copies is to comment on how you like this show. You can comment on our Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube channels, and Uh, then you'll be eligible to win one of these copies. I'll give you a brand new copy, not my well-loved, written-in, dog-eared copy. (laughs) And so best of luck. Let's get started. So family meals. Family meals is, I've come to realize, I truly believe that family meals are kind of the holy grail in terms of good nutrition, feeding your family well, helping them develop good habits for not only eating, but really skills for life. And as many, as you know, I have been really interested in feeding and nutrition for years. And I would say early on in this interest, I was super interested in foods and the health value of certain foods and really kind of what is the best diet that we should be following. And I would say really as a young physician, that was my main focus is trying to figure that out and how do we apply that and how do we counsel patients about that. But as I did more research and through my experience with my own patients and really my experience in my own life, feeding myself and feeding my growing family, I really came to realize that more important than what we were eating was how we were eating. And so what I mean by how is things like having structured meal times and snack times, having a division of responsibility in feeding your children in terms of parents deciding what, when, where we're going to eat and kids deciding kind of how much of what's offered that they're going to eat. Things like planning and prepping, all of those things I still believe that what you eat is important in your health, but many fold more. I, I believe that how you feed your family and how you feed yourself is far more important. Um, so really though, as I looked at it, the foundation of all the hows is the family meal. And in my mind, there's no better expert in the family meal than our guest today, Miriam Weinstein. Thanks for being with us, Miriam. 
Well, thanks for having us. Um, <laughs> just you, the royal we. Um, no, thanks for being here. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background just to get us started? Okay. Um, my background is in journalism. And um, I worked for um, newspaper chains and uh, wrote for magazines. And I was looking for book topics. I was researching something completely different when I came across um, some research about the fact that um, family meals seem to have, as you said, this sort of magical um, uh, effect. Um, and um, a group at Columbia University was studying many different things, trying to see what kids, what what helped kids avoid um, uh, using drugs, um, you know, all kinds of negative outcomes. And they were quite surprised to find that family meals were the most important. And at that point, I was in total shock because I had never thought about family meals at the, at at that point my children were sort of grown and out of the house. And I had always had family meals because I didn't know you were allowed to not have family meals. And I thought, wow, so I've actually been doing something good and maybe this means something. And the more research I did, you know, I just came across more and more ways that it was important. And, and that was, and so I wrote this book, it was quite a while ago. And I've since gone on to lecture about this topic, travel around the country and even internationally. And it, it just expands and expands. And even now in the pandemic, it's really important. Absolutely. And in your book, one of the things that you talk about is part of the magic of this is that it's really accessible to everyone. And so can you talk a little bit about how it really is possible for anyone to sort of institute this practice and maintain it. Yes, um, one one of the you know one of the things that is so difficult for people, especially parents with young children, is that they just don't want to have one more burden. But having a meal together is is not a burden. It, once you sort of get in the habit. It's a pleasure, and once you, uh, you know, you you get into the pleasure part of it, you get a lot from it. Your family gets a lot from it, and you can do so much good by just this very simple thing. And you don't have to be a great cook. You don't have to be anything special other than who you are. Absolutely, I think when you're talking about that, you know, I think as a parent. So I have younger kids, not super young, but six to 13. So we're kind of in the thick of it in terms of we're starting to get into that age where everyone's got activities that they're involved in. And you mentioned this in your book as well, but you feel that pressure that your kids need to be in sports and playing instruments and in all kinds of extracurriculars. And then you add to that, you know, work schedules and God forbid that, you know, as a parent, you want to go to the gym or do something to better your own life outside of work or something like that. So you have all these pressures to kind of get these things done. And I think for a lot of parents, that's what gets in the way or sort of is, is that barrier to actually going forth and having these meals together. Right, right. So, and, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. 
Yeah. No, I, I, I was just saying that you talk a lot about that. And so as you were mentioning, I think that the, that idea that we feel so much pressure because we think we need to secure our future for our kids and make sure that they're all doing all these things when the reality is most of our kids are not going to be Olympic gymnasts or NFL football players, uh, or, you know, play in the orchestra, but they are going to be part of a family for their whole lives. Mm -hmm. And that is what the, one of the big goals should be is to help them learn how to be part of a family. Yeah. And I think that one of the most impactful things for me in, in that book that I read and kind of repeated over and over again, I don't remember the exact line, but it was something that this, when you talk about it being so also beneficial for the parents is that line where you say, this is, you sit there at the dinner table and this is how we are, right? Like this is us right now. I, I wish I could remember the line, but you see everyone there just as they are and they never will be again. And so that even like makes me a little te- I know, teary. I know. I'm thinking, oh, that was a good line. Yeah. That was, yeah. yeah. Right. Because, you know, you tend to think of um, ritual. I, I started off by being surprised that the family meal was actually a ritual. And you think of rituals as being something big and grand or maybe connected to religion. But a ritual is some is any habit with meaning. And um, if you sort of put a frame, an imaginary frame around where you are, put that frame around the dinner table. And this is what your family does. This is who you are. And think about, is that what you want to be? Is that how you want your kids to remember what's going on now? Because you very clearly remember what went on when you were a kid. And, and if, if you think about it that way, it's your family's ritual and the meaning comes from you. Mm-hmm. And you talk also a lot about the benefits of those rituals in terms of outcomes for kids and resilience. Can you talk to us a little bit about that too? Well, there's been, over the years, there's been assorted, um, uh, assorted research um, for instance, you know, one group found that uh, children who had more family meals knew more about their families. And uh, because when you're sitting around the dinner table is when you normally tell stories like, you know, some kid does something wrong and you say, oh, yes, well, Uncle Seymour always did that. And the kids can realize, oh, yes, well, I'm not a bad person for having done that. The whole family, you know, we have all different kinds of people in our family and you can see where you fit in. And those kinds of things happen naturally around the table. You don't have to kind of build in lessons or build in identity, but it's so helpful for kids to have that sense of belonging. And in and in this particular research, it was done right before uh, 9-11. And so they had measured kids who had a lot of family meals as opposed to kids who didn't. And they found that after the trauma of uh, 9-11, the kids who had a lot of family meals were more resilient, which seems pretty simplistic. But on the other hand, it makes sense. You want to feel like you belong. This is who, where you come from. You know, this is you know, uh, whatever you're doing may be great and maybe not so great, but it, it just makes you feel more secure. Absolutely. I also, I think that the other point that comes along with that, because 
obviously I'm really into food and feeding. So we, we were already doing pretty well in the, in terms of number of family meals together. But I think that the other point that you bring up is what happens around the table is the storytelling. And I think that is maybe another thing to be conscious of as a parent, because I would say that despite my chattiness here right now, I don't think I'm like the biggest storyteller all the time, or at least I think it made me more conscious, not that I have to come to dinner with a story to tell or anything like that, but to think of it as an opportunity to say, you know, if it pops in your head, your story of your uncle who did the same thing, now's the time to share it. Because I think it's easy to overlook the importance of things like that in kids' lives. So I thought that that was a really good point that you brought yes, up. And, and there's also research that shows that kids who have more family meals uh, have bigger vocabularies because that is really how you learn to talk as a child, um, telling stories. And the kids who had bigger vocabularies, when they showed up in kindergarten with bigger vocabularies, they did better in learning to read. And those, they traced those um, those metrics all the way through high school for one group. And they held up all the way through, which is just amazing. Like if your preschooler has family meals, the odds are they're going to do better in school all the way through. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's hard to argue with that. Absolutely. There's so much emphasis on early childhood education and that importance of being at grade level. I think it's by grade three. If you're not at grade level for reading, you know, the odds that you're going to catch up are very low. So I think like you said, and and if I remember correctly too, that the research had shown that even more so than being read to, which is I think very yes. important and something that's very commonly suggested and kind of preached to get kids in that kindergarten readiness and reading readiness, it's super interesting to see that really family meals may be even more important than something like reading to your child, which is just kind of mind-blowing, I think. I know it. I was so shocked when I found that out. Yes, because we sort of hold up, oh, read to your child. You know, it's such a, a virtuous thing to do. But in fact, talk to your child is more important. Right. That's that's incredible. The other thing that you mentioned earlier was COVID. And I think that that changed a lot of things for a lot of families. And I'd be interested to hear what you have to say and kind of what your observations and the information that you have received. I know uh, for a lot of people I knew, especially professional people that had been working outside the home and then maybe were working at home, for them, I think that perhaps it was helpful in terms of being able to institute more family meals, but I don't know overall what have been your observations or what what have you learned? Well, um, it, it, at this point, it's all observational because nobody's done this research yet. <laughs> but um, people have been stuck at home and they've been stuck at home with their families. And one of the one of the difficulties that people had during uh, these lockdowns have been the just the, the the sort of floating sense of time and being very hard to anchor in time and to have a schedule, a mealtime schedule to have regular times that you will get together has been very helpful for a lot of people. And also a lot of people have found that um, they've been more focused on food 
because, you know, that's what there is. There have been so many other pleasures that have been taken away from us. So that mealtimes have become extremely important for um, for a lot of families. And uh, having kids in the kitchen was a new experience for a lot of people. Um, that's a whole other topic. Um, but really, family meals have been really, really a godsend to a lot of people during COVID. Yeah. Do you think that that's also related to, well, I hope that maybe that will help also build some of that resilience for our families and our kids? Because, you know, it's certainly traumatic on many levels for people. And so you hope that that Piece as I kind of try to look for the silver linings in all of the situation, you hope that that being able to kind of strengthen that would be good. Now, I also think you know it was easier to do family meals because kids sports no were place canceled. To go. yeah there was nowhere to go right so we were all home anyways. Um, but do you have any words of wisdom or as things start to open up as? kids' activities and sports resume. Um, Is there words of wisdom in terms of keeping that a priority? I would say just keep it intentional. Because if you think about, as you said, the good things that have come out of COVID, and this is one of them, remember that and build it into your schedule. Because if you don't build it into your schedule, it's not going to happen. Because... Mm -hmm. Uh, we as a society do not privilege family meals. Um, Although in the past few years, there's been more recognition about their benefits, but still um, our schedules do not, do not uh, give us a lot of leeway for that. And as things open up again and all the busyness begins again, and kids are on a million teams and have lessons and parents have meetings um, keep, make it part of your schedule and let your family know that you are doing it. Don't be shy about saying it. This is dinner time. We eat at such and such a time. We are all together. This is what we are doing. Don't just let it slide. Be aware of it and do it. Right. And one of the other topics that you talked about was well, maybe maybe the first step is to just ask you, like in your research, can you talk a little bit about the benefits to the children that you saw? You talked a little bit about reading readiness and things of that nature, but just all the benefits that you saw that seemed to come or be associated with increased number of family meals together. Um, well, um, the, the resilience, the... Um, the um, the uh, let the smaller likelihood of negative behaviors like addiction, like alcoholism, like teen pregnancy. Amazingly, these things all correlate with family meals. Um, so now there is a sort of a, a myth that's gone around that kids who have more family meals are more likely to have merit scholarships. That one's not true. <laughs> But every, but all these other things actually are true. Um, so, oh, also lower weight, rates of obesity. Mm-hmm. 
if you have family meals, because the other thing that we actually haven't talked about at all is that one of the benefits of having family meals is that you learn what a meal is Mm -hmm. and you are more likely to eat a nutritional meal if you are eating at home and if you are eating with your family. Uh, So it's helpful on both ends of the scale. Kids are less likely to be obese. And if you have family meals, um, that helps sort of ward off against eating disorders of all sorts. Yeah. And that was, and that's kind of another thing with eating disorders. I think you commented too, that a little bit our society, even if we, we don't have diagnosable eating disorders, it's the society at large seems to have disordered eating, if you will. (laughs) Does that make sense? Yes. (laughs) So, and Yeah, the thing that I've noticed more and more as time has gone on is that we have gotten so segmented in our eating. I don't eat this. I only eat that. Yes, but this person only eats this and that person only eats that. And um, sometimes it's couched. Sometimes there is a nutritional value. Sometimes we say there's some nutritional value. Sometimes we don't know. We're making it up or whatever we read about or heard about. But it's sort of... you know, for lots of people, it's become a religion substitute or a sort of um, uh, marker of, you know, sanctity. I would never eat that. Oh, yuck. I can't believe that you eat this. And it it just becomes very difficult to, um, to have a meal if you are, if everybody is, you know, in their own food obsession. Mm-hmm. So what you would hope to do would be to tamp down some of that and just uh, encourage normal, whatever normal is in your world. In terms of modeling that in your own family. And yes. I, I think that also relates to something that I call or I'm familiar with, like kind of an all foods fit model. Obviously, Mm -hmm. there are, like you said, religious reasons or perhaps legitimate health reasons or allergies or something that might make certain foods important to exclude or avoid. But beyond that, uh, I think, like you said, it's ended up sometimes it can become quite a barrier. And I'm sure you've experienced or we've all experienced it is is it becomes more difficult to invite people in and cook for them in your home because all of a sudden, like you said, you've got you have to ask, like, what are your dietary restrictions? What are all of these things? And it's like almost impossible to think of a meal that fits everyone's dietary dietary restrictions. And so it ends up, you know, restaurants or things like that, where everyone can eat their own food separately. Yes. Yes. It becomes, right. As you say, it just becomes not worth it to invite people for dinner because it's just a minefield. Yeah. And so, and that may be part of one of multiple reasons, maybe why practices like that might be dwindling. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. maybe being able to do your part in your family to help raise people that have a wider, (laughs) wider food acceptance level um, through your family meals. I think hopefully you can do your part at home. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, I think this might also relate to, so you have a more recent book that's about 
mourning or grief and loss. Yes. Uh-huh. But another thing, so I was actually speaking with yesterday, a woman who works at a, a nonprofit organization here in Omaha that's focused on grieving and loss. And we were actually talking about something that you touched on, I think also in your book, which was sort of the, the nothing speaks louder than an empty chair at the table. And can you just talk a little bit too, just sort of about this emotional piece that's really so strongly tied with family meals and feeding and how kind of how deep those emotions run? Yes. Um, you know, I, I think I'd like to talk about what a family is because that's a, a you know, that can be a, a difficulty for some people. Mm-hmm. One reason that people think they can't do family meals or don't want to do family meals is that they are not the correct family or what they do is not going to be as good as they remember or as they envision or whatever. But really a family is who people who care for each other and what your family is, is what your family is. Um, And it can be very difficult in cases of death or divorce or some kind of family trauma. But rather than ignoring it or avoiding it, better to have the community of who you are. Mm -hmm. Um, There, you know, for instance, a, a woman who I wrote about in the book, she was divorced and so she was and had two little boys and she just felt she couldn't deal with meals. So she just didn't. And things just went progressively downhill until at a certain point she decided, no, this is who we are. Let's figure it out. And she began to include the boys in the meal planning. Then they really got into it. They would, you know, have uh, then they would say, oh, tonight's going to be Mexican, so let's learn about Mexico. Tonight's going to be French, so let's learn about France. And they it, they became a family, mm-hmm. and that was who their family became. So um, you don't have to sweep the negative under the rug. Um, and you can use the getting together for mealtime as part of the new healing and part of the new who we are. I mean, if it's necessary, take a chair away from the table or move, you know, move everybody's seats around so that we're not just sitting looking at that empty chair. Just, um, you know, as I've gone around and talked about this topic, the sad thing is how um, many parents don't feel confident. So the thing I would like to try to say is, it's your family. Do it. You know, there's nobody better than you in your house. You are the best person in your house to do this. So go ahead. Whatever you do, it's not going to be perfect, but it's going to be the best thing that your family ever has. I think that that's great. I actually gifted one a copy of your book to a friend of mine who was, she was divorced with children and had now kind of entered into a relationship with a, a, another person and his kids. And 
it was interesting because she talked about how different it is that you don't think about it. But when you've been living as a, as a family, eating the way that you do, doing your rituals, and suddenly you're combining with a new family and their rituals. And I think that she was having a little bit of stress or frustration just sort of around like between all the kids' schedules and sort of their different habits that weren't aligned they weren't eating together or they weren't kind of, maybe they they didn't realize that it would be so important to be able to make this work and kind of the establishment of the new rituals of the new unit and maybe the importance of that in terms of helping them become sort of the new family unit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I I have friends who uh, we're on a second marriage. And um, luckily, they had five children. <laughs> the combined family was five children. So by the time they were teenagers, and both parents were working, each child was given a night, in which they Perfect. were responsible for dinner. Yeah. And, and one, you know, one, ch- one child was a very adventurous cook. One child made the same thing every Tuesday night, year after year, after year, after year. But that's okay. You know, that was how this new family became what it was. Well, I think that that's maybe another question is how do you counsel people? Because we say, obviously this is important. And I think as you discuss the research and the data surrounding it, you say, okay, this seems legitimately an important thing to do. But like you said, lacking the confidence or somewhere in there, there's a disconnect where they feel, but I can't do it or this doesn't work for me. What do you tell people? Start small, start where you are, wherever you are is where you are. And if uh, you have zero meals together a week, then you want to have one or start with a birthday meal. It doesn't have to be one a week. It just has to be a meal. Um, If you never have cooked in your life, then um, start with having a meal in which you all eat the same takeout food or at least find one meal that you are able to prepare and prepare it, you know, like that teenager did, make the same meal once a week. That's fine. You know, start where you are because where you are is, you know, what you're going to do is you're going to improve it. You're, you're not, you know, so um, uh, don't hold yourself up to some standard of the way it should be because that's not how it should be for your family. Absolutely. And I like that idea of just making progress and not expecting things to be perfect, because I think that's the other thing in the world of social media and Instagramming. And it looks like everyone's lives and meals are perfect and everyone's happy and every meal's, you know, organic vegetarian farmer's (laughs) market, you know. Um, And so you start to be like, I just I just can't. And so it's easy sometimes to say, well, if I can't, I'm just going to not. And so I think just giving yourself that grace and that permission to say where we are is fine and we're going to start here. And then if it feels good and it's working, we're going to build on that. So I'm going to say that one of the most interesting things I learned about from interviewing people for for this book is um, there is. a person, uh, Ribsinski, who um, did a lot of writing about oh, emotional states and psychological states and flow. And um, 
when I kept trying to ask him, well, what's the most important thing about family meals? He said, eat facing each other, sit facing each other. I mean, that is so simple, but it makes a huge difference because that is sort of the baseline. That means um, that you are going to take some time and some intention. You're not going to sit in the car and have kids eating from a paper bag in the back seat. You're not going to have kids taking food to their room and eating in front of their screens. You are going to sit facing each other. So if you are doing nothing and you feel like, oh, I can't have this perfect meal, just find some place where you can sit together. And that is going to change things because you're more likely to talk to each other. Um, you're more likely to notice what other people are eating. So I just want to make a plug for that one really simple thing you can do. I think so too. And I think that's an important message because two of the things that I would say I've observed either through my friend circle or would observe through pediatrics patients is I think that two common pitfalls or sort of paths that parents sometimes go down generally with very good intentions is number one, feeding the kids separately than the parents. Um, so the kids either have a separate meal because they think that the kids won't eat or won't like whatever the parents want to eat, or maybe even a separate meal time, uh, maybe because of work schedules or just because it's more convenient to cook for the kids first so that the parents can enjoy something later. Um, and number two is the, the practice I've seen fairly frequently of kind of propping up the iPad, but in terms of younger children, uh, sort of with that idea that I, I don't know if they consciously do it, but so that the child will sit long enough to right. eat a meal. And um, obviously, though, kind of with that, I think it, it, it certainly is not difficult to correlate then that with kind of mindless eating. So basically, like teaching the child that if they're just going to sit there and watch their show, they don't even they won't even realize that they're being fed. And I always find that interesting because as a parent, I, I believe, I, I've not ever read this anywhere, but I've always believed there's something inherent, like inside of you that you, you very deeply want to see your child eat. So, I mean, I, I believe it's some sort of caveman instinct where it's like, if you don't eat when the food is here, you're going to starve and die. Obviously that does not relate to the world that most of us live in at this point. And we're, we're more at risk for having a an excess of food. And so I would never see, I never saw any of my patients starve and die. It just didn't happen. So I think it's interesting that, you know, as we're so worried that people aren't, parents are so worried their children aren't going to eat, that I think that it becomes easy for them to, to fall into these patterns in order to get food in them, that in the long run, I think things like you're not eating face to face. You're not eating the same food. Um, that we're missing out on all the benefits that come from really, like you said, what could be such a simple change or simple just paradigm shift, I guess, in the way that we approach feeding them. Mm -hmm. and, and the other really simple thing that, uh, that I learned and that you um, alluded to is the idea that parents put the food on the table 
They're in charge of that, of setting up a meal time, meal times and dependable meal times and serving hopefully nutritious food. But the child is in charge of how much and whether to eat. And boy, that is uh, that really opened my mind. And I only learned that after my kids were grown up. I wish somebody had said that before, because, gosh, that just takes all the fire out of all, you know, so many of these um, uh, worries and fights and just let, you know, you, you make a mealtime, you make the food, put it down. We don't have to make it. That's a separate issue. Put it in front of the child. The child gets to decide how much or if. Mm -hmm. And that totally, and that helps so much to take that stress and it essentially eliminates the the mealtime battles. Um, right. Even though I feel like again, I, somewhere it's that it's that caveman instinct that I, I've got to find the research for this. It's got to exist. But I think when you say it, everyone knows what you're talking about. It's something inside of you that it, that seems counterintuitive. But like you, you can't say, believe that if the child doesn't eat. <laughs> I mean, yes, it's a great idea. I'll just put this down and you just decide, mm -hmm. right? But you don't really believe it. <laughs> well, I think even knowing it in the back of my head, you know, I don't bat a hundred percent on that by any means. Once in a while, it's like, you got to eat this. You need to eat something, you know, as my 13 year old going to school, they're kind of at that age where, I don't know, I think his stomach wakes up around noon or something. And it's like, it's hard. You know, in your head, you're like, you're not going to be able to focus in school. The world's going to end. But, you know, right. I, right. And also, you know, so it depends on which kind of kids you have, you know, and and some kids that don't, you know, that have a harder time just putting in more food. You, you They have to learn that actually if they don't eat the food at breakfast, they will be hungry an hour later. Yeah. Some kids don't have so much trouble with that. And some kids too. So you want them to learn that. Right. But it's, you know. Absolutely. So another thing that you had mentioned when we were just talking before was something about how the mealtimes you're creating can actually be as good as or better than the mealtimes that maybe you grew up with. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Well, that's a big issue for people both ways. You know, some people... Um, remember family meals as being wonderful and they are just so sure that they can never create something as wonderful. And on the flip side, some people had family meals that were just awful um, and they do not want to go anywhere near it. So what I'm, but the point is that what you are doing now is what your children will remember. So you can create something that takes the best parts out of other meals that you have learned about and only use the best parts. You, you know, it, it's up to you. You can make it as, you know, you can do it. What about people that, because at least for me, I, I grew up in sort of the eighties and nineties. And I feel like that was the heyday of, processed foods. So I think that, you know, if you didn't come from a family that cooking was, or home cooking, kind of scratch cooking was a high priority, and you didn't feel like you learned those skills growing up besides just, you know, rewarming, um, 
I think again, that becomes like kind of a barrier. People have sort of low self-esteem. Do you have any tips or suggestions for people that just say, well, I don't know how to cook. Start small, start very, very, very small. Just think of one meal that you would like to learn how to cook and just learn how to cook that one meal or if, or, or start small by looking in your cupboard and in your freezer and in your spice cabinet and seeing what is always there and think about what you actually enjoy eating and what you might keep as sort of staples that can be a backup for you. Because the other thing to learn if you don't know how to cook is just what to keep in the house. Because if you don't have pots and pans, if you don't have the thing, the staples, and every family is going to be different in terms of what staples mean for them. But learn how to keep things at home in a simple way. And, and again, what works for you in your life and your family. Don't, don't, you're not going to turn from zero into a gourmet cook. And that's not the goal. Maybe it is a goal or maybe it isn't. But you don't have to, that's not what you have to do. Absolutely. I also, it kind of brought to mind, so um, my my parents divorced when I was a teenager and my dad remarried when I was in college. And so he's been with his wife for quite a while now. And unfortunately, in the last year, she was diagnosed with cancer. And she was kind of the cook in in their couple. And, um, but she was kind of incapacitated for a while and not, they weren't really able to go anywhere. And, uh, you know, I know my dad really wanted to take good care of her and felt a little bit like he didn't, he said, I don't, I don't cook. I don't know how to cook. I've never cooked. Um, and one thing I thought was cool that kind of brings into me the idea of accepting help or finding help, we ended up getting him hooked up with kind of those meal kits, those meal mm-hmm. delivery kits. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was, it's all sort of cut out, very specific instructions. Everything's chopped, tells you step-by-step step what to do. And I will tell you that, I mean, he, I could see the confidence in him increase and the joy that he had <laughs> just from cooking. And oh, it, it was great. And so I thought, you know, why wait till, you know, I mean, he's almost 70 years old to, to, it's, it's wonderful that he had that. And I thought, well, you know, I think that as you're talking about, even as teenagers or as, um, you know, young adults or young families, I think something like that could kind of also act as, um, sort of a bridge or a stepping stone into gaining a little bit more confidence in the, in the kitchen and maybe making it something that's more, attainable for you because really, you know, I mean, it cuts out a lot of the shopping, all kinds of steps to sort of make it maybe something that's more doable and a confidence builder. Once you kind of are like, okay, you know, I know how to use the oven. I know how to saute things on the stove. Maybe I can kind of branch out from that. And so I think that that's another thing is, I mean, obviously that costs money. So if you have, if you have the ability to do something like that, I think that's a good option, but just keeping in mind that you don't have to do everything by yourself. So maybe maybe that's an option for you, but maybe maybe something else is an option for you, but look for help and be okay with accepting help. Again, it doesn't have to be, 
you know, Betty Crocker and I made everything from scratch. I've been working all day. So I think that that's another thing that maybe, um, like you said, kind of start small or baby steps. That might be something that people could consider. Yes, that because that's, you know, that's something that's that's an option that's really grown and you have a lot of choices now. Yeah. Yeah. So um, maybe the the one of the last things to ask you about is just um, the message of because, again, as you you talked about this in your book, and I think it's kind of always in the back of your mind while you're learning about the data that surrounds family meals is sort of is the family meal the chicken or the egg or is it is it the cause or just sort of an association with a lot of these positive outcomes that we're seeing for kids. Um, so what would be your response to that? Well, I, from what I've been able to learn, it, it's not just the chicken or the egg. In, in fact, even the, there was some research about dysfunctional families, even dis, very dysfunctional families. If they manage to get together for a meal, they do better than the families that don't manage to do it. Families with a, a, a parent who was suffering from alcohol severely and could the family could barely manage to be together in any way. If they could manage to have a meal together, the rest of that family did better. And the rest of the family could think of themselves in a better way. Like we have this issue in our family, but we're still able to do this. So um, that that's what, that's the thing that I have come away with. Yes. You assume that if there's something wonderful, a family that is, you know, organized and healthy and together, they'll be able to do the wonderful thing. But what about the family that isn't? And what I've learned is uh, even if you are, you know, whatever issues you have, if you can manage to do this one thing, it will put you that much further ahead. Yeah. Awesome. Well, is there any other messages or anything that you would have for our listeners about family meals? Uh, don't worry about what anybody else is doing. Do what works for you. Uh, just be intentional about it. Be aware of what you're doing and do the best thing that you can do and enjoy it. Don't do it as a misery. Do it as a pleasure. I love it. Well, the next segment of our show, I don't think I told you about, but we do a segment that's called Ask Me Anything. And the surprise part is it's also Ask You Anything. So uh, we'll have a couple of questions and uh, share our answers from our listeners. And now it's time for your questions. Ask Me Anything with Dr. Kristen on the Feeding the Family podcast. Our first listener question is, what does the research show about the benefits of family eating together for adults, even when kids have left the home? Um, you know, I, hadn't, I didn't find any research about that, I'll be honest. But anecdotally, it just makes people feel better. Um, and uh, it can make the adult relationship more secure. Because, again, you know that there's a time that you're going to get together you know that there's going to be a time that is not about stress or arguing, but just about sort of connecting every day. So a- anecdotally, um, it, it, it works just fine for people who don't have children. Yes, it's not all children. I was going to say, too, I think that even if, if you say, like, if you're grown and your children have left the house, I think we always think about 
building resilience and helping our children. But the truth is, too, is that that is a change. And I think that that could build resilience for the maybe newly empty nesters and creating rituals kind of for your new nuclear family unit, which the dynamics have changed quite a bit. And so I think that that could also be helpful for adults. And I think the other thing that you've mentioned multiple times is just the way that it promotes more healthy eating habits, the way that socializing with someone while you eat um, maybe slows down your eating and also might help you to say like limit the pace at which you're eating food, be more aware of sort of your own satiety and things like that as you're eating. Our next question is, in the age of COVID and video chats becoming more prevalent, is it beneficial for families to get together uh, via video chat, via Google uh, Connect or Zoom for their family dinner? You know, we've actually done that and it was kind of touching. It was it was definitely touching. You know, you put you put the computer on on the table and you sit and you talk to your family who's, uh, you know, half a continent away. And um, yeah, it, it was very touching. I absolutely agree. I think that is one of the cool things, again, you know, if, if we're going to be looking for silver linings, the way that everyone's gotten more comfortable and familiar with Zoom and FaceTiming, it actually allows us to expand maybe our definition even of family and have that FaceTime with people, that face-to-face experience and maybe get some of those benefits that we get from that, from the family meals, from people we, in previous years and generations, maybe never would. And our last question is, is there anything that shows that family dinners, family gatherings like this, can benefit senior citizens even so far as to extend life and the amount of years a person lives? I haven't seen any research that speaks to that. Most, to be honest, most of the research is focused around children. But um, in general, research, you know, now that I'm saying it, there there was research that correlated um, death dates for old old people. And um, people will tend to live up to and a little bit past a holiday. Hmm. Um, depending on what your religion is or your background is. And this was a, a cross-cultural study. So if, you're, if your big holiday is Christmas, the, the, the death rates are low right before Christmas. People want to live through Christmas and then they will die afterwards. You want to have something to look forward to. You want to um, have something that has meaning for you. So I, I'm not aware of any specific research on that, but I will say anecdotally from my own life. So this May, my 99 and a half year old grandmother actually moved in with us. And I will say the reason she moved in with us was because she'd previously been living independently, but she was living in an assisted living uh, apartment. And I know the last year and a half, or I think it's going on two years, she she's a very social person. And she ended up being very isolated in her apartment because of COVID. And, you know, they weren't allowed to do sort of the communal eating. Uh, She wasn't allowed to socialize with her friends the way that she used to. And unfortunately, she ended up having a fall and getting hospitalized. And so she ended up in sort of the nursing home 
arm of the place that she was living. And again, having been in the hospital, she was completely isolated and um, just was kind of going downhill fast. Like we realized that she wasn't, without being able to have the visitors and the socializing, she was really not doing well. And she had previously been very vibrant and active and um, mentally coherent. So we made the decision to move her in with us in May. And I will tell you that the transformation in her since that time is incredible. So she, I mean, she's funny. She's laughing. She's um, been taken off of multiple of her medications since she has started living at our house. And I'm not doing anything. I'm not providing any crazy treatments. We're not doing anything in particular except I mean, honestly, between and my kids, we are all busy. We're, we're living life, going to work, going to school, going to kids' activities. We're not necessarily, um, you know, just sitting there caring for her all day. She has someone always there. But, I mean, I think some of the biggest thing is that we all just sit together at dinner time. You know, she has somebody to sit and talk to at mealtimes. She, she eats like a horse. She wouldn't be embarrassed for me to say that, but she eats incredibly well. Um, and I think it's just that again, it really reinforced for me. We always look at the kids, but I mean, her health and her well-being, her level of stress and her mental status in three months has just improved substantially. And the rest of our family is just like, I, I mean, I don't even know how this happened. We joke that she's like Benjamin Button, like she's aging backwards. Um, and so again, there's no research or anything behind that, but like to in front of my face, be able to see that transformation, I would say just kind of being part of a family and a family meal again. Um, it's those things that you can't really measure, but when you oh, that's see it, wonderful. You know and are you planning a birthday party for her? Yeah, her birthday's in December. So uh, we're going to have to get some big plans for a big blowout. So <laughs> that's great. Thank you. Before you leave us, what is the best way for, uh, I, I know I purchased my books off of Amazon. And if our listeners are not one of our lucky winners, yeah. what is that I the best way to get Okay. And also can um, look up more information about you, your current work, your past work on miriamweinstein.com. Perfect. And again, if, if you haven't already, go ahead and comment on our Facebook, our Instagram, or our YouTube channels. And hopefully you'll be one of our lucky winners for our book giveaway. Um, and if you just, if you enjoyed our discussion, please also like, follow, and subscribe. And we hope you tune in next week for another exciting discussion on feeding the family with Dr. Kristen. Thank you. Thank you.